Hello, I'm Paola and welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a podcast by the WCCM about what it means to live a contemplative, spiritual and Christian life while still playing an active role in a modern world. Join us for conversations with fellow contemplatives in action from around the globe. In this podcast, Father Lawrence Freeman speaks about meditation in the monastic tradition. This talk is part of a week of study and practice at San Anselmo, Rome in Italy, 2015. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Good. So we've uh, we've been exploring different aspects of the monastic tradition of prayer, or the place of meditation in particular in this monastic tradition. The word tradition, of course, is a dynamic word. It means transmission. It's not a museum where you look at finished works of art, but it's a process in which we are constantly receiving, uh, adapting, and passing on. This is the very nature of the gospel and uh, a transmission of a living word, a living encounter, a living act. So it's in this sense that I'd like to speak about John Main as uh, a, a contemporary figure within this uh, ancient tradition. And just as a, a, a visual uh, reminder of that, if you remember in the uh, talk on Merton that uh, Stefan gave today, there was a picture of his hermitage in the grounds of Gethsemane Abbey. Uh, Thomas Merton died in 1968. In 1976, John Main, so it was only eight years after, 1976, John Main was invited by the abbot and the monks of Gethsemane Abbey to give uh, some talks to the community. He had returned uh, to London sh shortly before from a number of years uh, at, uh, as headmaster of St. Anselm's uh, monastic school in Washington, D.C. And he had returned to uh, London, to his monastery at Ealing Abbey, to uh, establish, first of all, a lay community within the monastery of young people, young men at that time, who would uh, live for six months in the monastery, learning to meditate and sharing in the monastic life. At that point, we didn't, and I joined, uh, that was my point of entry into the monastic life. Um, at that point, we, we, we didn't integrate the meditation, the oratio pura, with the opus dei, with the office, but we would meditate in a separate house where we were living, and then we would walk over to join the monks for um, the office, for mass, and for uh, meals, of course. Then we spent the day working in the, in the grounds or elsewhere in the monastery. So uh, the monastic world had begun to hear about this, I suppose, and um, he was invited, anyway, by the abbot of Gethsemane to give some talks to the, uh, to the monks. And that was, in a sense, his first public teaching on meditation in the Christian tradition. And uh, those talks 
were recorded and uh, years later I was told by guests staying at the monastery of Gethsemane that they were still playing these tapes in the guest refectory. They were published in uh, a major monastic journal called Cistercian Studies and uh, then we published them. Actually it was the first bit of editing and uh, work that I did for him. Uh, we published them as a little booklet uh, on our own called the uh, Gethsemane Talks, Christian Meditation, the Gethsemane Talks. And um, they still remain one of, that still is one of the most useful, simple and attractive introductions to, um, to meditation in the tradition and in the way that he passed it on, transmitted it. Well, after he had given these talks uh, to the monastic community, he spent a few days in uh, Merton's uh, hermitage. And uh, actually, quite recently, I was looking through some of his letters, and he wrote to a very dear friend of his called Rosie Lovett, uh, and he said, I've just celebrated uh, the most loving mass of my life here in Merton's hermitage. And this short few days spent in Merton's hermitage provided him with the, the experience and the, 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 the discernment that he needed to make a very important decision, which was to whether or not to accept an invitation from the Archbishop of Montreal to, to go there and establish a Benedictine community that would be dedicated essentially to the uh, teaching and the, and the practice of meditation. And it was there in Merton's Hermitage that he came to that decision that he would do this. And he uh, went, came back to um, England and uh, eventually persuaded the abbot and the community of Ealing uh, to uh, agree to this. So uh, Gethsemane was a, a, an, interesting, an interesting place if you believe in synchronicity uh, in tradition. Uh, that uh, Merton, who had done so much to open up the Christian mind to uh, its own contemplative tradition, uh, but had not given a specific teaching on, on, on prayer that could, that could uh, be translated into the life of the ordinary Christian, or the non-monastic Christian, uh, it was here, nevertheless, that John Maine made a very important decision. And similarly, actually, by a very strange coincidence, it only hit me this, this only hit me a few years ago, uh, in 1990, uh, after I was about to go back, or had gone back to London, uh, after several more years in Montreal after his death, uh, I was giving a retreat at the uh, to the monks of Gethsemane, and um, it was um, there, I sp and I spent a few days in the hermitage uh, as well, and it was immediately after that that we had the, the, the great seminar uh, at New Harmony, Indiana in 1991, uh, at which the World Community for Christian Meditation uh, was formed, sort of was named, and and given a, a, a constitution and a, an organization. So if we're just thinking about 
tradition as a transmission, and the, con the, continu the continuity points in a tradition are very significant and symbolic. And uh, so I think it was, it was quite, uh, quite moving, I, I think, for me to, to see that picture of the Hermitage in Stefan's presentation today. So John Main uh, is clearly uh, part of the, get the picture. Uh, an important contemporary part of the monastic tradition that we've been exploring this week. He had total conviction about the monastic archetype. This idea that uh, there is a monk within each person is I think central to the relevance of monastic tradition, monastic culture, monastic teaching, theology uh, to the Christian life as a whole. If the monastic life was, was simply a specialized eccentric form of life, um, there wouldn't be the same relevance to other forms of life. And uh, but John Main, I think like many others, believe that there is deep within us, uh, there are certain archetypes, certain, certain fundamental, what should we say, orientations of, the, of our humanity. Uh, and one of these could be classified in Jungian terms, perhaps, as, a, as an archetype. And St. Benedict probably gives the simplest and most powerful definition of this archetype when he says the monk is one who truly seeks God. That is the, the discernment. So there is something within each of us that truly, not just superficially, not just occasionally, but truly and continually seeks God, wholeness, the source, the, our origin and our destination. So John Main had a conviction about this monastic, the universality of this monastic archetype and the value of monasticism to the modern world. And this grew with, with time and through his own experience. And I'd like to give you a little overview of his life to, to humanize some of these ideas that of course he didn't, he wasn't, when he was born in 1926, he didn't, he didn't say, uh, know he was going to become a monk and he didn't, uh, know that his great contribution to the world would be a teaching on this uh, aspect of monastic prayer. He had no illusions about uh, the failures of contemporary monasticism, and, uh, like John Cassian and Germanus when they went to Bethlehem uh, and found the life there was not sufficiently deep or helpful uh, in the seeking God, and so they went from there to the Egyptian desert. And as Merton himself, uh, uh, increasingly during his life as a monk, wrote critically, sometimes very, almost very rudely, about, uh, about the failures of monasticism, monastic life as it was lived. And I think Bede Griffiths himself, who went uh, after 20 years uh, as a monk in England, went to India to find the other half of his soul, as he said. Now, these, these figures, these monastic figures, believed in monasticism, they believed in the universality of the monastic archetype, but they were very clear 
about the contemporary weaknesses and failures of monastic institutions and of monastic leadership. And John Mayne uh, suffered this as well. He was frustrated with the inertia and the complacency of some aspects of this institutional uh, life and of, and of the complacency, as I said, um, of a tradition that was too weighed down by its own um, institutionalism. And I think this is an important characteristic of John Main's vision, and this would apply to those other monastic leaders or prophets I mentioned, is to be able to see the distinction between uh, tradition and institution. N none of these were anti-institutional figures. They weren't anarchic. They were monks, they were trained to, to live in a rather hierarchical and highly organized form of life. Doesn't suit everybody. Drives some people crazy to have to live in a timetable and some of you might have loved these last few days living in the rhythm of monastic life, but you say, my God, I couldn't live like this forever. Other people, it is liberating and joyful to do it. So uh, these figures, and John Main uh, in particular, loved the monastic rhythm of life and accepted the, and saw the value of the institutional structures and the, even the hierarchy of obedience and so on, which is not for everybody. But they were frustrated, and he was frustrated, both by personal temperament and as a visionary and as a reformer with the way the tradition that should be carried by the institution was often weighed down by the institution. And I think this uh, reflects very much that um, those insights that Sarah shared with us the other day when she was talking about liturgy and the church. Um, nevertheless, he always believed in it. He believed in keeping uh, the tradition in, or at least uh, connected to, organically connected to the institution. This was why when he did make that decision to, to leave the comfortable, as it were, institution of his monastery in London and go and start a completely new experiment uh, in Canada at that time, um, he, uh, it was very important for him to carry this idea forward within the institution and get the permission of the, uh, of the abbot and the council and it took him a couple of attempts to do that, but he, he was a persuasive individual and he, he carried this idea over, but he carried it over within the institution. Let's just look a little bit at, the, at his life. I've got some photos here uh, which are from the, uh, the website, WCCM website. This was uh, a picture I took of uh, John Main in 19, uh, it would have been in probably late November 1982. He died in, on December the 30th, 82. This is our new website, isn't it? which is going to be launched very soon. A new version of the website. Okay, so here, are, these are the oldest pictures, are they? 
Hmm. What? So the right right hand click. Okay. Okay, well this is not what I wanted, won't say. Let's just go back. Hmm. Why can't I go back here? Ah, okay. Okay, here's the earliest known photograph of John Main. Future monastic prophet. <laughs> I think this is him here. He's uh, fair-haired. Okay, then he was born in London in 1926. Uh, his uh, Irish parents, his from uh, the family roots were in Ballinskellig's uh, County Kerry in Ireland. Um, his grandfather, Douglas Main, uh, John Main's baptismal name was Douglas, uh, his grandfather had been an engineer working for Marconi and had come uh, from Scotland. And he'd come to Ballinskellig's as it was the point where the first transatlantic uh, telephone cable was, uh, came from the States and touched uh, European soil. And uh, it was there that not only did the cable touch Irish soil, but his grandfather's heart was touched by a young girl uh, in the village. And uh, so that was the connection. Uh, so he was... Celtic on both sides, uh, Irish and Scottish. But he was born in London uh, in 1926, educated by the Jesuits at, at um, Stanford, um, Stanford School. Stanford School. Uh, so these are some pictures of the family. That would be his father's for some kind of holiday. He had, uh, this is him, I don't know how old he would have been then, three or four maybe. Less. <laughs> Looking a little proper. That was, uh, he was a, a chorister at Westminster Choir School and uh, had a very, very good voice and used to sing. Uh, and just actually before he, shortly before he died, he had a kind of a flashback, very powerful flashback to his uh, days singing at, uh, at Westminster Cathedral. So again, quite a. Then they would go back to Ireland occasionally for holidays, but really brought up in England. And this is his family. Uh, and he was very close to his family. They were a strong, loving family, very humorous, very slightly wild, and uh, enjoyed each other's company immensely and remained very close. Always. So this would have been, I think, just after he left school. Uh, this was uh, immediately he left school. He became a, a, a trainee journalist on a London paper, and this was his uh, identity, his press card. So he could, he used to do all sorts of reports, like writing reports on concerts or football matches, things, uh, whatever they needed. 
Then uh, the war came, and uh, I think 1943, he uh, joined the uh, Royal Signals and was sent, uh, was attached to a unit that <coughs> interestingly went behind or went ahead of the advancing Allied troops in occupied Europe. And his, the job of his particular group of soldiers was to identify to identify uh, enemy uh, uh, positions where they were sending out uh, signals. And he said the, this, the work of trying to identify where the signals were coming from and then getting in there uh, was greatly helped by the invention of the quartz crystal, which you put in and it makes it much easier to identify where the signal's coming from. And he used this image uh, much later in his life when he was writing about prayer to describe how we get onto the wavelength of the mind of Christ. We pick up this signal and tune ourselves into it. So it's a contemporary use of uh, metaphor to describe prayer. And uh, just as a, another example of how tradition gets misunderstood, some about, uh, probably about 20 years ago, when we were starting uh, to teach meditation in Brazil, there was a, a monk, rather eccentric monk, uh, in a monastery there, who was attacking Christian meditation. But he was attacking everything, actually, uh, new, or that he thought was new. But he was attacking this, and he said, this is John Main's teaching is all new age. Meditation is new age. So eventually we, we had a talk. He wouldn't talk about it at first, and I, he was difficult to talk with. But uh, eventually we did get to talk, and I said, now, wh what exactly do you mean by New Age? And why is John Mayne New Age? Because if you read Word into Silence, his first book, you'll see it's very much a Trinitarian theology. It's very traditional theology. So he said, no, 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 it's all New Age. I said, so explain why. He talks about quartz crystals and uses crystals in order to get to higher states of consciousness. You know. So I said, have you actually read this thing? Yes, I did read it. So I, I, I handed him the, the relevant passage and he said, oh, well, anyway. <laughs> so tradition can be misinterpreted. So here, uh, this is his uh, sister Yvonne with some of her children. And uh, shortly before he became a monk, when he was, I'll fill in the gaps in a minute, he uh, was living in Dublin and helping to raise her children uh, because her, her husband had died. And uh, he was a, a very um, good uncle and, a very, and had, had a, lovely, a very wonderful relationship with, uh, with children who loved him as a storyteller and as somebody to play with. Okay, this is, uh, this is him here. Uh, this would have been about 1955, I suppose. Um, I'm leaping ahead now, so maybe I should pick up the story. This is when he was the chair, a professor of international law at uh, Trinity College uh, in Dublin. So, okay, he, uh, he's in the war. He survives the war. He was wounded in an explosion and hurt his back, but 
which occasionally would, I was once in a restaurant with him, I think in Belgium, we were actually going to see some old ladies who had sheltered him and his fellow soldiers uh, during the war. And uh, he was, you know, his back uh, froze and he, he couldn't move for about half an hour. So he had uh, some war damage. But uh, after the war, he uh, came back, of course, to, to England. And uh, he joined the Canons Regular of the Lateran and spent a year uh, as, as a novice uh, down in Cornwall and then was sent to Rome to, to study. And uh, this would have been 1946, 47. And uh, I think he, he, I once actually came, uh, when I was in Rome with him once, we went to see his former novice master, who at that point was the, the head of the order. And uh, he, he didn't have the happiest memories of that period. Uh, he found it very repressive. It was the kind of church, the kind of religious life that he came to really renounce and reject and uh, felt was... was was dehumanizing and uh, but he stuck it out and uh, for some time and then finally realized that it wasn't um, wasn't for him so he left and uh, came back to London and his sister told the story you know with the family you can't always be sure the stories are true that that when he arrived at her flat in London uh, straight from Rome he he took out his, his habit, uh, which he brought with him, and threw it down the garbage chute of the, of the apartment building. He said, now that's all finished now. So he was a strong uh, person and a strong-minded. Uh, strong so then he, uh, he studied law at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, and then he uh, decided to, to travel. He joined the uh, British... Uh, foreign service and uh, went to study Chinese at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and then he was sent to uh, Malaysia to Kuala Lumpur which then was in a state of insurgency uh, fighting the communists and uh, it was there he was attached to the governor general's um, office and as a Chinese translator. Uh, but he continued to study Chinese. And it was there on one, one day that he was sent to a... Um, he was sent to, on a sort of little diplomatic mission to a place called the Pure Life Society, uh, which I know some of you have, have been to, which was then some way outside of Kuala Lumpur. Now it's uh, in, the, in the busy suburbs of it. And uh, he was asked to go to visit a, an Indian monk, a Tamil monk, uh, called Swami Satyananda, who the British had made a justice of the peace for his work in uh, bringing about a reconciliation for, among the different um, uh, uh, racial groups in, in Malaysia. And then also uh, he had started a, uh, this Pure Life Society, which included an orphanage for um, children who were victims of the war. Uh, and he was bringing up children from different religious and racial backgrounds uh, in a spirit of, of harmony, uh, Muslims, 
Hindus and, and I think Muslim Hindus. So then he, um, he went out to visit this monk and uh, delivered his message and thanks and a letter. And then the conversation uh, became a little more free and they began to talk about the spiritual basis of this monk's life and work. And he began to realize that he was in the presence of a very holy man, a man of deep interiority and deep inner life, as well as a man uh, very generously and creatively involved in social work. And so the conversation uh, moved on to prayer, and the monk asked him, are you uh, a prayerful man, Mr. Main, or a religious man? He said, yes, I am. I, I pray. I'm a Catholic. He said, I, in fact, I go to Mass every day, and I pray. And the monk said, well, how do you pray? Probably a very important question in the history of this tradition. And uh, John Main, or Douglas Main as he was then, explained how he prayed. And he described, basically, the kind of mental prayer that he would have learnt, and most of us here would have learnt as children. Remember, he was educated by the Jesuits. And uh, he described this once as the prayer of contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication, CTS, Catholic Truth Society. Uh, so basically, those forms of prayer, liturgical and, uh, and mental prayer and devotional prayer. And the monk listened to this very respectfully and said, it's wonderful to meet a man of spirituality. Uh, but it, then he began to speak about his own understanding of the prayer of the heart, which he called meditation. And he described uh, in a verse from the Upanishads that struck Father John very deeply, that the spirit of the one who created the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. The spirit of the one who creates the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. Now John Main was deeply moved by these words, partly because they resonated with his own uh, Christian faith, the creator and the indwelling of the spirit, and also because he felt these words were being spoken by someone who knew the meaning of them, who had lived the meaning of them. So they spoke a little bit more, and uh, the monk explained how, in their way of meditation, they would move from the head to the heart, letting go of thoughts, words, and imagination, and coming into the silence, the stillness of the heart. And that they did this uh, with a very simple practice of repeating a word or verse continually during the time of the meditation. And again, John Main was struck deeply by this in two, in two ways, partly because of the um, authenticity with which the monk was speaking, and partly because it resonated with his own tradition of interior prayer, repetitive prayer, the rosary, and other forms of repetition as a way of coming to deeper prayer. But at the same time, he knew it was something different. There was a, a radical simplicity here that he hadn't encountered before, and a clarity of a discipline. And so he said to the monk, 
Well, I, you know, as I told you, I'm a, I'm a, a Christian. Um, could you teach me to meditate? And the monk said, well, of course, you'll be a better Christian if you do it. So he agreed, but he said, I can only teach you on one condition, and that is if you're serious about it. I think he felt, you know, he was a, he was a busy man. He wasn't going to waste his time on somebody who was just, you know, going to waste his time. So uh, John Manning said, well, what do you mean by serious? He said, well, by serious, I mean that you will meditate every day in the morning uh, for half an hour and in the evening for half an hour. And uh, he said, that's all you really need to do. But you can come and meditate with me once a week and if you have any questions, I'll be happy to discuss them, answer them or whatever. So for about two years, less than two years, this is what John Lane did. He was a very disciplined person uh, uh, in his personal life and organized and that's probably why he liked monastic life because it was very regular and he was a regular kind of guy. So he, uh, he int introduced meditation into his life and once a week he would go and meditate with uh, his teacher. And in the Gethsemane talks, those talks he gave at the Abbey of Gethsemane, he said that he would sometimes ask the monk, so how long is this going to take? And the monk would just smile at him. Or he'd say, you know, fine, uh, now what's going to happen next? And the monk would just say, say your mantra. And in a talk that John Main gave shortly before he died, and we've collected all these talks uh, that he gave over about a five-year period, um, the collected talks of John Main on CDs, uh, he remembers this, this very early introduction to meditation. And he says on this talk, he said, these are probably the most useful and wisest words I've ever heard about prayer. Say your mantra. So then, uh, very much enriched in his spiritual life, uh, John Main returned to uh, England. I think he wasn't all that uh, excited about working for the British Empire, being an Irishman at heart, uh, but he returned to England, uh, in fact returned to Ireland, and uh, went back to his uh, university where he'd studied law and uh, was appointed uh, professor of international law very soon afterwards. And uh, he enjoyed university life. Uh, he enjoyed being close to his family, helping to raise his, uh, his sister's children. And uh, he, 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 being very organized and also a lover of life, he said he would, maybe exaggerating a little bit, he said he would do all his university work by 10 o'clock in the morning and then devoted himself to pleasure. Uh, like going to the races and he loved concerts and uh, walking and uh, he, he loved life very much and I think this love of life is the key to understanding why he became a monk and very much tunes in with what uh, Guidalberto was saying a couple of days ago about asceticism asceticism as a celebration of life rather than as a form of punishment or sort of depressive negativity or self-laceration. Okay. 
So, where are we now? So here he is uh, in Washington, uh, sorry, in, uh, in Dublin, Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, he was also called to the bar. He didn't practice at the bar, but he was a barrister. Gray's Inn. And then, uh, in 1958, he joined uh, the uh, Benedictine uh, Monastery of Ealing Abbey in London. This is his first mass, uh, and giving his, I think, giving communion to his mother. Um, so what led him to become a monk? He said that it was, uh, it was clearly from his early, as a very young man after the war, he felt a call to religious life of some kind um, and didn't find it in the form that he, he first entered it. But the seed of that calling, a vocation, was there. But what uh, generated it probably was uh, in the death of a nephew of his, a young boy of um, 12, who suffering from a, a brain tumor. And uh, he accompanied the boy and his sister, the boy's mother, and the family during very traumatic and painful um, illness. And I think uh, as a result of that, he was sent back to the, the very deep questions of the meaning of life. When you, with a child who dies at the age of 12, you ask, what is the meaning of life? And this uh, led him to become uh, a monk. And I think you can see in the course of his life is this quality of being able to make radical changes in his life uh, at moments where everything was going well, when things were really flourishing and he was successful. You know, these, these are usually the transition moments, in, uh, these are usually the moments in life where you don't want transitions to happen. You just want to enjoy your good luck or your success for as long as possible. But these were characteristically for him the times where he would take this leap to everyone's surprise. Maybe he even enjoyed surprising people, but uh, this, was his, um, this was his genius, really. And I think it uh, accounted for his, the speed uh, and the direction of his seeking God. So he uh, came to Ealing and still meditating integrating the meditation into his daily life and daily mass. And when he came to the monastery, he looked forward to the opportunity to speak about this with a Christian monk. And when he spoke about his prayer life with uh, his novice master, he was a little disappointed, to put it mildly, when the monk told him, well, I don't think this is a Christian way of prayer that you're doing. So, but maybe God had some plan in using it to bring you to the monastery but now you should give it up. So that's not what he was expecting to hear. So this was 1958, remember? This was even before the Beatles started to meditate. So uh, meditation was very much associated in the Christian mind with something oriental and non-Christian. So in obedience, uh, he did this. He gave up meditation. Uh, and in the Gethsemane talks, he describes how this was like the beginning of a, of a desert, an in, of an in, inner desert. But uh, he was a positive and joyful man, and he, of course, continued to pray in the other ways. 
and prayer was always a major part, I mean, the center of his life. And as a monk, he prayed in different forms, and he loved all these different forms of prayer. But he had lost this, this prayer of the heart, and, um, which he had learned in the East. But he hadn't yet got the means to connect it to his own Christian tradition. So then he came here to San Anselmo in Rome to uh, study theology. Oh, so this is actually before, before this picture, but uh, not long before. Oh no, I thought we had some pictures of him in, I think they're out of sequence. Sorry about this. No, I told them to put these in the right sequence. Okay, so let's forget that in a minute. Huh. All right, so anyway, he, um, he came to study here in Rome. He was here during the heady days of the beginning of the Vatican Council. He was uh, very enthusiastic about the changes taking place in the mind and mentality of the church and um, has some very interesting stories about that period. And he loved Rome, he loved the community. This San Anselmo at that time was, would have been filled with young monks uh, sent here for kind of advanced study from all over the world so he could see monasticism as a, as a global uh, movement, global culture and so on. So he was there just you know, at the heyday really. And uh, then he returned to England, was, was ordained. And actually, just before he was ordained was, was when I first met him. I was a boy in the school at uh, St. Benedict's, uh, and uh, we were told that there was a new religion teacher going to take us to the beginning of the term. And we had destroyed our previous religion teacher, given him a nervous breakdown. And so we were looking forward to doing the same with this new teacher who was called Brother John. So he was only a brother, so we could really do what we liked with him. And, uh, but as soon as he walked into the room, we could see that, you know, this was a man of, of this was a man of great, uh, you know, self-possession, confidence, and, you know, if he'd been able to deal with insurgent communists in the Malaysian jungle, uh, he'd be able to deal with a few schoolboys in West London. So, and his, his uh, gift, I think, for, for teaching uh, children was, as he said, to, to treat them as, as if they are adults, but never forget that they're children. So we, we came to really respect him because we felt he respected us and uh, he was a good teacher. That was actually the only time he taught me uh, during my school years. So then uh, he was ordained, he became the deputy headmaster of the school immediately and uh, he was there uh, in the background of my, of my school years. I had a few disciplinary run-ins with him. But... And then in 1969 he was uh, sent uh, to St. Anselm's Abbey in Washington DC. And he was sent there to do some study. There had been various things going on. 
But he uh, very quickly was asked to become headmaster of the school. And uh, he was, uh, he, 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 he took over the school, as he said, rather dramatically, he said, you know, the monks were all leaving to get married. Nobody else was getting married in those days, but except monks wanted to get married. Uh, the boys were all smoking pot or, you know, running, running, running wild. And he brought, uh, you know, he brought, and the, there was a financial crisis, he brought things into uh, order and became a very successful headmaster and a successful figure in the Catholic American educational world. And then uh, one day the abbot said to him, John, we have a, we have a young man who's student who's just come back from the East. He's been uh, staying in ashrams and Buddhist monasteries and he's full of stuff about meditation. Could you speak with him? Because he's asking, is there anything like this in Christianity? So John Main, uh, Father John met with him and listened to this, this young man who was truly seeking God and trying to seek God at that depth of experience that had been opened up for him by his exposure to the, to the contemplative wisdom of the East. And uh, that was a turning point, a second great turning point for John Maine. Because in wanting to guide this young seeker uh, respectfully and at the same level of depth, he was led back to uh, study the roots of his own tradition. And the first uh, point of call on this uh, search into his own tradition was Augustine Baker, the great 17th century English Benedictine. And in Augustine Baker, he, he read about the, the prayer aspirations, uh, repeated prayers um, that would be... Um, uh, form part of the inner life of the, of the, of the monk and, and of other Christians. And Baker refers back to Cassian uh, as the origin of this form of aspiratory prayer. And so John Main went back to Cassian, to the 10th, 9th and 10th conference of Cassian, and there in uh, the 10th conference, which I spoke about a few days ago, uh, he now recognized, remembered and recognized the same method of prayer, uh, the prayer of the heart, the mantra. Cassian calls it the formula that, um, that he had uh, learnt uh, some years before uh, when he was in, uh, in Malaysia, in the East. Now that was a, as I, as I think you may have the impression already, John Lane was, had a quick mind and also a decisive mind. Once he had seen something, he acted on it. He could wait for a, for a long time, patiently, but when he saw it, he, he acted. And so he began to meditate again himself, and I actually went out to see him just about this time on some personal business. And uh, so he was now 
meditating again, and he would walk back from the monastery, where, or from the school where he was headmaster, back to the monastery at midday for the midday office and to meditate. So he was now meditating three times a day, in the morning before the morning prayer, midday, and in the, uh, in the evening before Vespers or after Vespers. And uh, so I had the good fortune to go to speak with him at this time. And it was in one of those conversations that he spoke to me about meditation, quite unexpectedly. And what he said had a, made a huge impact on me. He didn't give a long talk about it. He just spoke about meditation in a few light words. And this is how I think tradition happens. Just sort of a very light touch at the right moment. It's all the question of timing, isn't it? Timing and receptivity. So at that moment, it hit me hard. But I didn't understand what he was saying. Intellectually, it made no sense to me at all. I was on a spiritual quest. Uh, I was on an intellectual quest uh, for spiritual truth. But uh, I didn't understand. It didn't seem to make any sense to, to let go of your thoughts, words, and images. I didn't know what that meant. But at the other level of my heart, I knew that what he was saying was totally authentic and uh, true. And not only that, but it awakened in me something new that I hadn't felt before, and I think this is something all of you can identify with. Uh, that was a longing, a hunger, for the, uh, the experience of this new revelation, of what this meant in our own experience. And that's a phrase that John Maine came to use uh, characteristically in all of his teaching. And I think this sets him aside, you know, from other, uh, I'm not saying he's better or worse, but it sets him in a different category from many other monastic teachers of this period because he was not only describing what he saw, in fact, he recognized that what you see, what you experience, what you find out through meditation is really impossible to put into words. You can use poetry, you can use photographs, you can use, uh, you know, theology, you can use all sorts of ways of expression to try to uh, express it, but ultimately that's not the point. So you will not find long, beautiful descriptions of states of prayer in John Maine. What you will find is a very persuasive presentation of a tradition uh, and of a conviction that meditation is something that is universal and that we enter into in your own experience. That's his phrase. In your own experience. And this takes you right back to the heart of the 10th Conference of Cassian. Cassian says, Magistra Experientia. Experience is the teacher. If you don't do it, you won't understand it. And isn't that what the, what the Swami said to him? I can only teach you if you do it. If you open yourself to this experience. And isn't that what we say today to people who come to meditation groups or 
uh, retreats and so on. You, we have to do it, experience it in order to know it. So <clears throat> he uh, stayed in, in Washington for another few years. Now meditation was becoming more and more powerfully the center of his life and the meaning of his own monastic journey. And so he was now at another very successful moment in his life. Uh, the school was flourishing. He was getting accolades and compliments everywhere. And, uh, and then he resigned and said, I want to go back to his home monastery in London. And he came back and uh, persuaded or offered the idea to the abbot and the community of setting aside one of the houses on the grounds as a, uh, a, a house for, uh, for, for a group of young laymen who would come and live for six months, sharing in the life of the monastery, but also developing their own practice of meditation in a disciplined way and meditating three times a day. And I went to see him. I was working, or just leaving, working a job at, at a, at a investment bank at the time and I went to see him on a cold January evening and he was sitting alone, he was alone in this house uh, because it hadn't opened yet and he was uh, telling me his, his vision what it was about and I could again not fully understand it but, but this seemed to connect with that hunger that I had had awakened some years before when I heard about meditation. So I thought, well, okay, I've got, I can, I'm changing my job, I can take six months and uh, come and learn to meditate finally because I wasn't doing any meditation. And uh, he was a little bit discouraging uh, and he probably thought I wasn't ready for it. And, uh, but anyway, I, I joined and it was a very unique experience of monastic living parallel to the institutional form of the monastic life, which lacked meditation. Some of the monks came over and meditated with us occasionally, but not very often. But they supported it, thought it was a good thing, and they all hoped that we, we would be vocations, you know, to that form of monastic life. The only one was me. Uh, and I didn't stay very long in that uh, particular monastery. But anyway, uh, it was a transformative experience because at this level where we were, we were also living the tradition. So you had the institution and the tradition sort of in parallel. But that creates some tension. Institutions are, can be very suspicious of tradition. They don't mind their own traditions, their own customs, their own habits. But tradition itself can be quite threatening to institutional life. So there were inevitable complications there. And then, as I said, uh, he received an invitation to start a new form of uh, Benedictine monastic life, integrating meditation with the office, the mass, the prayer, and also making the teaching of meditation central to the life, and the work of the monastery. It was the work of the monastery, it was not to run a school, not to run a parish, not to make chocolates, um, or even to write books, but to, uh, to teach and meditation. 
So, in uh, September 1977, uh, the abbot of Ealing drove us to Heathrow, and uh, we took a plane to Montreal. We got out of Montreal, pouring rain. The Bishop of Montreal was there to, to greet us, and drove us uh, to what was to become our uh, first uh, monastery in, in, uh, in this experiment. And it was the whole of the monastic tr tr uh, institution cut back to its roots, cut back to its very roots, pruned to its essentials. Because we, in, that, in, that big, in the first house, we didn't even wear the habit, except on special occasions, um, because it just wasn't appropriate. But the essential, the essence of the, uh, of the life was there. The integration of the Opus Dei with the Oratio Pura. And, uh, and the work was to, and the hospitality, we didn't have any guest rooms. Uh, we had a, some of the lay community from London came out to join us. Uh, monks from other parts of North America began to visit us. The abbot primate here from Rome came out to see him and uh, invited him to actually to start a new Benedictine congregation, which he would have done if he had lived longer. So, uh, but it was quite new and difficult to categorize, difficult to pigeonhole. But it was respected, and John Maine's, John Maine's genius, really, and his courage, his uh, pr prophetic uh, insight was, was very, very powerful. Then in, uh, in 1980, he uh, was diagnosed with um, colon uh, cancer. And the, all the evidence was that it had been caught very quickly uh, in time, but it returned in uh, the beginning of 1982 and then metastasized. And uh, he died um, in December of 1982. So let's just finish. This was, the, uh, this was the part of the lay community at Ealing. That's me just after I'd taken the habit. Uh, this was the great scripture scholar, uh, Bernard Orchard. This was one of the young monks. And these are, uh, this is an American student, and this is a boy from the school. That's, that, that's at Ealing again. This would have been probably during his time in Washington. This was in his room at, at Ealing. And this is in Montreal with the bishop who invited him there, very well, the visionary man called Bishop Crowley. And this was uh, some of the young uh, monastic candidates at the larger house in Montreal that we were, we were given. We started our first meditation group for children uh, here in, in Montreal. This young man here is now a professor of international affairs at uh, Concordia University in Canada. Uh, this was Rome, so this is all out of sequence. So this is in Rome. What church is that? Anybody recognize it? St. John, John Lateran, okay. So this is him, and uh, would have been about 1960, I think. 
this was shortly before, this was the last summer holiday uh, in Nova Scotia before he died. No, this is all out of sequence. This was after his first operation. Oh, it's all out of sequence. So this is, uh, this would have been after, if you see him wearing a beard, uh, it's after his operation because he stopped, he stopped shaving after his first operation. This is with his sister. This is writing at, uh, during that holiday in Nova Scotia. Now this is uh, the large house we were given in Montreal at the time. And this is an oblate. This, this is a, a gathering of the oblates. Very important part of his vision of monastic life was the oblates. And he realized that these were people who were truly seeking God, practicing meditation on a daily basis, and inspired by the, by the rule of St. Benedict. So. Uh, this is gone then. Okay, these are some of the last photos of him. Okay. So, it's a little, I, I wanted you just to have a, a sense of the man and uh, of the life. Uh, I'll more briefly speak about the um, monastic roots of his teaching on meditation. I mentioned Cassian, The Cloud of Unknowing, Augustine Baker, uh, um, John Chapman, the abbot of Downside, all of whom speak about this monologistos prayer, the prayer of one word. And um, also, I think it's this monastic ambience of, of the tradition that influences the way he teaches. He teaches meditation as a discipline, as an ascetical discipline, the transcending of the ego. And in the asceticism in the sense that we heard about it the other day. He emphasizes the simplicity of this teaching, but also that it's not easy. And because it's not easy, we need community to help us to uh, persevere with it to learn. It's a learning process, he says. And fortunately, the meditation experience itself creates the community that allows you to, to grow and persevere with it. It's also obediential. For St. Benedict, obedience is the primary vow, not just in the sense of doing what you're told in an institutional way, but uh, in listening. The word obedience means to listen deeply to the Word of God. So for him, meditation is the, the total obedience of the whole self, the whole person. And listening to the mantra is what brings us into this state of complete synchronizing with the wavelength or the, the quartz crystal of, of, of the prayer of Christ. And, and another aspect of the monastic quality of his teaching is the daily discipline of the meditation. Uh, in the monastery, we're used to the idea that you should go to all the offices. John Main translates that into the daily regularity of meditation. Integrate the meditation with your other forms of prayer, but do it morning and evening. His theology of prayer, which you'll find in his, uh, in his books and in, in his talks, prayer is transformation. It's the transformation of our mind 
and heart, the integration of mind and heart. It doesn't replace other forms of prayer, but it brings these other forms of prayer into uh, clarity and into deep meaning. He, after he had started to meditate uh, in Washington again, he reread the uh, New Testament and the, the scriptures and he read them hungrily and attentively and re reacted res very freshly to them and particularly to the, uh, to the letters of St. Paul. And it was in St. Paul that he hears about the mystery of Christ in you, the indwelling Christ. We do not know how to pray, but the Spirit prays within us deeper than words. So all of this became as it did for Cassian. Remember what Cassian says. He knew that meditation was working on him because he was reading the scriptures from his own experience. He knew experientially what the scriptures were, were meaning. Um, one of the key things, key words in John Main's vocabulary is experience, and it's very important to understand what he means by that. Not experiences, things that happen in meditation, highs you get, or consolations you get, or visions that you get, or something happening. By experience, he means an entering into the bigger, deeper, broader, indeed cosmic experience of Christ. Not just my own little experience, oh, I had a great meditation this morning, but uh, into the transformative experience of Christ. It is not our prayer, but the prayer of Jesus. And this is exactly what Cardinal Newman refers to. This is Newman's great idea as well, is that in the Christian life, we move beyond notional ascent, what Newman calls notional ascent. So believing all these things, with our heads, but not actually experiencing them. Newman uses the word real in his vocabulary. John Main used experience. John Main also believed in that theology of meditation that a, um, a personal change takes place. We see life not in terms of limitation, but in terms of potential, expansion. He's a fundamentally joyful person. And also, in one sense, he's, at, he's, he's rooted in the orthodox uh, understanding that it is the resurrection, even more than the, the crucifixion. You can't separate them, obviously. But it is, his starting point is the resurrection. Whereas in so much of Western Christianity, Latin Christianity, our starting point and often our ending point is the crucifixion. So. His meditation had, as it were, given him a new center of theology, which was resurrection. He, and he saw the cross. He understood the cross. He suffered the cross himself. But he understood the cross in the light of the resurrection. And that's why I think, you know, we can see the teaching of meditation as a form of evangelization. And maybe today, an essential form of evangelization. How else are we going to get this across, what Sarah was saying the other day? How are we going to get this across to people? Except through the experience of personal transformation, which leads to community and to a new understanding of the relationship between the church and the world. 
John Lane was a churchman. He loved the church. He was desperately frustrated with it, but also uh, believed in it and believed that it needed to be renewed, reformed, and, and set free from this institutional uh, weight that had descended upon it. And as I said at the beginning, and I'll finish here, he was a monk. He loved being a monk, and this, although his form of monastic life uh, changed, as, as mine did, and uh, that, but that only brought him into a, a deeper experience of the monastic archetype in his own personal story. He saw being a monk as a liberation, as a joyful liberation, and as a grace. Now, there are many, many forms of grace in your life, such as marriage or having children uh, or building a major multinational corporation. All of those might be joyful and grace-filled experiences. Sometimes you, don't, you can't put them all into one life. Uh, but for him, it was the monastic life was a grace, a gift. And his way of expressing that was as a community of love, the title of one of the collection of some of his essays and works. Um, and for him, community of love, and this is what brought me into, into monastic life because of the way it inspired me, that the, the whole purpose of the monastic experience is to create these centers of, of, of dynamic love in which the, the members draw each other out into the fullness of their own personal being. Not easy. He never said it was easy. But he always saw the joyfulness, the joyfulness of it. And it was in this sense that he, uh, he spoke about meditation and, and indeed the whole Christian life as a transcendence of the ego. I just want to end with... Um, no, I'd just like to show you some of his books, first of all. I think there don't seem to be many of them left on the table outside, but... Uh, what? Oh, here he is in uh, Montreal. 1980, when the Dalai Lama came to visit the uh, little house we had. This, I don't know who this person is, but I don't know what he's doing there at all. So, here's the book Community of Love. Those of you who know Kim will recognize Kim's back here. Kim Nataraja. Uh, second. All of these you'll find on the on the website. This is the Daily Readings, one of the most popular books uh, of John Main, edited by Paul Harris in Canada. Daughter Silence, collection of his uh, talks. This is a little biography of John Main by Paul Harris. Uh, a book about John Main by people who knew him. An anthology, The Essential Writings of John Main, put out by Orbis. This is a book, uh, actually this one here, uh, called
called The Expanding Vision. Sarah has a chapter in it. Uh, and it was a, a seminar that, uh, for the 25th anniversary of his death. This is a little anthology of his sayings. This is his, the last book uh, that he published in his lifetime. And the foreword to this book is one of the uh, most succinct, only about two, two or three pages. But uh, he describes the whole, his whole understanding of the journey of meditation in that. This is a collection of his newsletters, Monastery Without Walls. Another book of his uh, teachings, short teachings. Like the Desert Fathers, he, he didn't write long books. This is a, a systematic anthology of John Main put together by Peter Ng in Singapore, who was a very systematic thinker. thinker. And uh, he, wrote, he very, did great service, really, to John Main by putting that book together. Now, here's a little book of his sayings that we use now to bring meditation to business people, MBA students, to doctors uh, and teachers in secular environments, where sometimes you're not allowed to use the word God or, the, or any religious language. But by selectively choosing some of his sayings, we were able to bring his teaching into the secular world. This was his first book, Word Into Silence, which is his basic theology of uh, the Trinitarian theology of Christian meditation. Another one, Word Made Flesh. And these are the collected talks, which you can now get. We've enhanced the digital quality of them now. Uh, are they, they're all online as well. So you can. Ah, yes. Now, this is, this is uh, thank you. This is very good. Each of these now is our, are the, uh, each of these set, CD set corresponds to one of the books, the talks given in, in the books. Okay, so this is where you can actually download all these talks. And, and actually, from what I've said, you probably can see the point of saying that um, this is an oral tradition. The gospel is an oral tradition. It doesn't matter how many books you write. At the end of the day, what, what is transmitted in this tradition is person to person, heart to heart, eye contact to eye contact, physical being with physical being. And uh, now, obviously, we need the media, we need the internet, we need books, we need all these forms to help us to do that. But I don't think, I think if every one of us were to look into our own journey, we'd be able to identify key moments where this personal one-to-one -one, uh, encounter took place. That's why community is so central to the monastic life and to the teaching. Um, I won't, I won't uh, read this, but there's a chapter in this book, The Expanding Vision, which is an article, Reflections on Christian Meditation from John Cassian to John Main by Adelbert de Vogue. Adelbert de Vogue was a great, uh, very great uh, 
monastic scholar of the uh, died uh, French French scholar died a few years ago, and this is a very thoughtful, nuanced appreciation of John Maine's place in the historical monastic tradition. And uh, he says something, and this, this, is a, this is a very traditional scholar speaking, but so traditional that he's radical. Um, he sees that what John Maine is doing in terms of Benedictine tradition, and not all Benedictine monks would agree with this, but John Maine returned to a source of the rule, that's the Cassian, to supply <clears throat> for a lacuna, a gap, something missing in the rule, which is left open or imperfectly filled by those who make use of it. So John Maine, by going back to Cassian, who is a source of the rule, is able in contemporary uh, form of the tradition to supply a gap in the rule. And that gap, it's not entirely a gap because Benedict points to Cassian. But it is effectively a gap in the rule, uh, the absence of a method of contemplative prayer corresponding, as Adelbert de Vogue says, corresponding to the Jesus prayer of the Orthodox Church. We didn't have it. We had the rosary. For some people, that's, that's perfectly useful, good, sacred. But we didn't have in the Latin Church uh, a, a form of the prayer of the heart, a method of the prayer of the heart corresponding to the Jesus prayer of the Orthodox Church. So, um, I, if in, in terms of the, the tradition uh, and a, a scholar's and view of the tradition, you might like to read that uh, chapter in the Expanding Vision by um, Adelbert de Vogue. So, uh, that's John Main his life, his teaching, and I think uh, an influence uh, which remains very potent uh, in the life of the monastic tradition. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to the Contemplative Revolution podcast and listen to your favorite podcast app. In the media section of the WCCM website, wccm.org you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation thanks for listening bye bye